Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Just a couple of pages to your left, if you looked at the verse we prayed through this morning. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, it's a smaller New Testament letter. Uh, if you're in Acts or any of the other letters, uh, Colossians, Philippians, Ephesians, Galatians, go to your right. If you're in Hebrews or 1st, 2nd Peter, 1st, 3rd, 2nd, 3rd John, Revelation, go to your left. You'll stumble into 1st Thessalonians. Let me tell you, it is, um, I believe, a sign of God's blessing and grace on us that we have more than one individual in our church who can expound God's word to us. So I'm very thankful the last several weeks for the way that Wendy's written Doug's sermons and how good that they've been and that Doug's been able to articulate them. I really do think uh, that's God's goodness to us, uh, that our church isn't left alone um, in the preaching of his word, but God has raised up many of us, several of us who have that calling upon our lives. And so um, I hope you're thanking the Lord for that for sure. This week will be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Next week, Lord willing, we will begin to walk through the minor prophet book of Amos. Which is a daunting task for me. Amos is a weighty book. But I thought before we did that, it would be good for us, helpful for us, to take time and remember why it is that we at Trinity have Develop the pattern of walking through God's word verse by verse, systematically, methodically. Furthermore, I think it would be good for us as individuals to ask the generic question, why do we even listen to the Bible at all? Why should we care about the Bible? Why do we preach it and read it and study it and sing it and pray it? Why do we have so many times in our service where the Old Testament is read or the New Testament is read or we even at times read it together in a corporate reading moment? Why do we encourage you to bring your Bibles? Why do we say that it's good and healthy for us as a church and in fact the best practice for us as a church to walk through whole books of the Bible? And when we're not in books of the Bible, why do we turn to specific passages and, and walk through it word by word by word? Why do we care what this book has to say? That's an increasingly significant question today. Increasingly so because we live in a world that's increasingly denying God's word and outright rejecting God's word. You know, that's one of the main tenets and pillars of secularism. To render the church and to render the scriptures absolutely unnecessary. In fact, to render them fictional and base everything else on feeling, autonomy, science, reason, logic, etc., etc. And not only is that the, the practice of the world at large, such thinking has crept into whole denominations and entire churches. We don't have to look very far to find whole denominations or whole churches that once upon a time, in fact, not too many years ago, we would look at and call sister churches today outright denying some of the core teachings of the scriptures. In fact, rejecting the gospel. 
So the question, why do we care? Why should we care as a church, as individuals, as God's people? Why should we care at all of, of what the Bible says is a very serious and timely and important question. Let's even make its contemplation personal. How many people today possess in their homes, in their hands, in their laps right now, a Bible in their own language, in the most literate time of human history, and yet wholeheartedly neglect it, avoid it, don't even realize the treasure that they possess, sometimes even outright discarding it. Why is that the case? Why do professing Christians know very little about God's word? Why do professing Christians not just go through seasons where they neglect God's word, but have long-standing patterns of no desire for God's word? Those are the questions I want us to answer. And I think in answering them, it'll be good for us to understand why we devote so much attention to this book that's bound together in our laps and printed so that we can read it and have it permanently. Well, let me give you some generic answers to those questions before I try to answer them specifically this morning. First, let me remind you to set the stage and the tone here that the Bible alone is the central tool and only operating manual for the church. We may use other things like we read this morning, a creed. We may compile a statement of faith. But ultimately, for the church at large, for our church specifically, and for us as individuals, the Bible is the only tool sufficient for life and salvation. It's the only authority by which you and I submit our lives to. The only authority that governs the church of Christ. The only authority that we are expected to. And responsible to live by. This has been the teaching throughout church history. Let me quote to you a few uh, older documents. First, the Westminster Catechism has as its very third question. It asks this, what is the word of God? And here's the answer it gives. The holy scriptures of the Old and New Testaments are the word of God. And then it adds this, the only rule of faith and obedience. The London Baptist Confession of Faith in 1689 similarly says as its very first sentence, quote, the Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Only sufficient and certain rule for all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. That those documents elevate the Word of God. They, they centralize the Word of God. They, they make the Word of God exclusive. And they say, hey, there may be a lot of other helpful things out there and documents and practices and even traditions, but it's the Bible alone that rules us. The Bible alone that governs us. The Bible alone that matters above everything else. It stands 
on the top pillar, the top tier of the top pillar. That's not only been true for whole confessions and whole groups of people, that's been true even for individuals. You know, one of my favorite church history characters, Martin Luther, at the Diet of Worms, when he's on trial for his teaching, he's facing excommunication from the church, and that means possible, likely death. When it's demanded of him to renounce, recant his teachings, this is his famous response. He says, unless I am convicted and convinced by Scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of the popes and councils, for they contradict each other. Then he says this, my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Luther wasn't alone down throughout church history. We find a myriad of brothers and sisters who with great resolve and commitment and endurance and many of them even to the loss of their own life were convinced that this is not just like any other book. This is not just a compilation of literature. This is not just entertainment or pastime reading or a hobby. This is the very word of the living God. Men like William Tyndale and John Wycliffe and John Huss and Miles Coverdale and many others laid their lives on the line, many of them giving up their lives so that you specifically, all of those men I mentioned, so that you specifically would have the Bible in English. You know why? Because they were convinced that the Bible is no mere book. It is the Word of God, and it needs to be in the common language of the common people so that everybody might have unfettered access to the Word of God. William Tyndale, betrayed by one of his own assistants, taken to the stake to be burned because he translated the Bible from Latin and Greek into English. You know what his last words were? God, open the eyes of the King of England. King of England happened to be Henry VIII, who within the next year would marry a Protestant and decree that the Word of God be translated into English and placed in every church across the land. And ever since, God has preserved His Word. It's been compiled, it's been protected, it's been preserved so that you and I possess the Word of God not only in a ton of different translations, some definitely better than others, but we possess the Word accurately. If you and I are ever equipped to read Hebrew and Greek you'll find just how stunningly accurate your English Bible is. What possesses people to offer their lives for a book? What possesses a church throughout her centuries of existence to so staunchly and radically and vehemently and even wonderfully defend and embrace and cherish it? I think we can find an answer in our text today in 1 Thessalonians 2. Paul is writing to Thessalonian Christians and he's commending them for their response and their treatment of God's word. 
he clarifies to them in this one verse and following throughout the rest of the letter, but specifically in this one verse, he clarifies that it's been the word of God that's the singular contribution to their widespread reputation, their widespread influence, their widespread faith. He reminds them that it's through this word of God that the gospel was revealed to them. And so bound up in their entire Christianity, start, the middle, the end, is the centrality of this word that was preached. He reminds them that they know God and they know God in salvation because in His grace, God gave them His word. Brothers and sisters, we only know of Christ. And we only know of sin we only know of judgment and we only know of the need of forgiveness and we only know the offer of forgiveness because God graciously revealed himself in scripture understand this one fact before we jump into the text if God did not want to be known he would not be known he is an undiscoverable god he is only a revealed God. Try as you might, even through the nature and creation, you cannot discover the person of God. But God in His grace and mercy has clearly, thoroughly, savingly revealed Himself so that you can actually know Him intimately. In other words, it's impossible for us to try to arrive at the understanding or knowledge or relationship with God apart from His Word. But because we have His Word, you and I can know the living God of heaven and earth, commune with Him regularly, often, and intimately. So it's with that I want us to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, just one verse this morning, verse 13. And in this verse, I hope our hearts will be prepared I hope we will be renewed as we begin a new season of studying God's Word, specifically, Lord willing, again, in the minor prophet book of Amos. And I want us in this verse to not walk through it sequentially like is our custom, but to look at the example of the Thessalonian Christians and to learn lessons from their example. I want to ask three questions that I think have the answers found in this one verse, I want to ask, what is the Word of God? I want to ask, what do we do with the Word of God? And I want to ask, what does the Word of God do with us? So read here, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. Paul and company write, and they say, We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. What is the word of God? Well, very quickly, if you look back into chapter 1, verse 1, you'll find it's not just Paul writing. It's Paul, Silvanius, and Timothy. So I'll refer to them as Paul and company. And they've already addressed things that they're thankful for in verse 2 of chapter 1. We thank God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope 
in our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, we're thankful for your Christian faith and that it's not just internalized, but it's also outwardly expressed in your conduct, in your behavior, in your decisions, in your life. In fact, he's going to say later in verse 8 that the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but also your faith has gone forth so that we don't need to say anything. Your reputation exceeds you. By the time he gets into chapter 2 of verse 13, he says, I have something else to be thankful for. And it's the origin of all that I've mentioned already in chapter 1. The origin of this faith that you're living out. The origin of this faith that precedes you. The, the origin of the Christian conduct of your life and the Christian conviction in your heart. Verse 3. And the origin of that is the Word of God. It's the Word of God, he says specifically, that you've heard from us. Paul has said all through chapter 2, verse 1 through 12, that he has brought the Word to them. Verse 1 of chapter 2. You yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. Verse 2. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. And not from impurity or an attempt to deceive, just as we've been approved by God and entrusted with the gospel, we spoke, we speak it. Verse 5, not with words of flattery. Verse 9, you remember, brothers, our labor, labor and toil, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Paul says we faithfully brought it. We completed our responsibility. We shared it with you boldly and, and even in the midst of conflict. And we even removed any hindrance in the way. We, we didn't demand payment. We didn't even ask for money so that we weren't flattery or deceitful or working on a pretext of greed or pandering God's word for money. We, we earned our own living so that we could preach to you and verse 13 is his commendation of their response. We came preaching and you were ready to receive. You could sum up verse 13. Paul says you are you you recognized and received the word of God. It begs the question, what is this word of God that he's referring to and how? How did these Thessalonian believers come to recognize it? What distinguishes it? What are the marks of this word that distinguish it from any other guy coming along and preaching or any other philosophy that's being propagated in the Thessalonian circles and, and world at the time? What sets God's word apart? Let me very quickly give you four things. Number one, it's divine. It's divine. There's a otherworldly dimension about it. Flip in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1. It's worth you looking at this in your own Bible. 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter's to your right. A few pages, a smaller letter. Second Peter chapter 1 verse 16 through verse 21. Peter, a 
an apostle who walked with Christ from the very beginning, he says, we did not, did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. I was there. I saw it. I heard it. Verse 17, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by that majestic glory, quote, this is my beloved son with whom I'm more well pleased, end quote. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven because we were with him. Verse 19, and we have the prophetic word that's even more fully confirmed, greater than our eyewitness account which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, verse 20, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's true of the prophets in the Old Testament. Peter says it's true of the Writing in the New Testament. We're not talking about something made from mankind. We're talking about something that originates in heaven. Paul would make the same claim in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, and for correction, and for training in righteousness. How do we distinguish the, the Word of God from every other uh, speech or, or book out there? Well, it, it bears the scent of heaven. bears the marks of divinity. There's something distinctly otherworldly about it. It's not like everything else produced by mankind. It has a different origin and we recognize it. John chapter 10, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice and they recognize it. In that chapter, one, it's because he calls them by name, but two, it's because he's quickened their heart to realize it and recognize it. There's something about God's word that's so evident that it's not from man. It's not made up. It's not myth or legend like all the other religions. It has a supernatural origin to it. And it does supernatural work. So number two, the second mark that goes right along with this, all four of these build together. Number two, it's piercing. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, another text you should have hidden, hidden in your heart, talking about the Word of God. It says, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Sharper than any two-edged sword. Which means one of the marks of this, this word, one of the marks that distinguishes Scripture from everything else, is not just that it's divine, but it proves its divinity in the way that it quickly cuts to the soul. Absolutely unlike anything else. This book and the words contained therein, they don't just occupy the ears or the mind. They somehow make their way into the heart. And in the heart, they begin to 
do something. They cut away what shouldn't be there and they bolster what should be there. And all of a sudden we realize over time that this word has an effect upon my heart and it's changing me. It's producing something else in me. It's dissecting me and examining me and exposing me and making me new, rebuilding me up. It's speaking life where there's death and it's shining light where there's been darkness and it's addressing parts of my heart that nothing else can or has. It satisfies in ways that nothing else ever has satisfied. It brings a freshness and a life that doesn't seem illusioned, but substantial, sincere. Number three, it's it's divine, it's piercing, it's also true. Psalm chapter 119, verse 142. Psalm chapter 119, verse 151. Both say that the word of the Lord or the commandment of the Lord is true. Jesus in John chapter 17, when he's praying, he says in verse 17, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Not only do we recognize it by its heavenly scent, not only do we recognize it because it's it's piercing into our soul like nothing else, we also recognize that it's different because it's true. It's not failing in its promises or in its warnings. It proves itself to be true. There is no error, contradiction, or failure within it. It's proven itself to be reliable and accurate even over space and time. What other book stands as true and applicable for an American and someone in Iraq at the exact same time? Or someone from the early parts of human history to today? It's transcending time and it's transcending space. And in all of that, it's never lost its reliability or its accuracy or its truthfulness. And all of its prophecies come true and all of its warnings prove to be true. got a truthfulness to it unlike anything else even the best historians find errors in their work but not in this book number four it's unfailing and it's effective as doug read this morning from isaiah 55 verse 10 and 11 as The snow and the rain and all those things go forth and do what they're supposed to. So does the word of God. It does not return empty. It accomplishes that for which I sent it. In other words, just like when it's piercing us, this word is doing something to us. In fact, it's not just doing something to us, not just doing something around us. It's doing something in us, moving us and convicting us and striking us and instructing us. And it's not just doing it momentarily. It's producing enduring and lasting things within us. It's changing our lives, our character, even the deep and secret things within us, our desires. There may be other things in creation that move our emotions, songs, poems, good books, movies, But there's nothing else that changes our nature. 
this word, it bears distinguishing marks. It's got the scent of heaven. It's divine. It bears the voice of divinity. It's piercing in ways that nothing else, no other work pierces into my soul and dissects me and, and exposes me and lays me open. It's true. It's never proven to be contradictory or unfailing. And it's effective. Keeps changing me from wickedness to holiness. In fact, the longer I'm in it and the more I'm exposed to it, the less I, I have a taste for the things of my past. My spiritual taste buds are changing for something heavenly. Well, much more could always be said about the Word of God. In fact, the Word of God says much more about itself. We could always talk about and elaborate on its authority. We could talk about its sufficiency and its accuracy. We could talk more about its infallibility and inerrancy and more about its ability to withstand millennia of scrutiny and criticism. But my point in all of this is simply to remind you, brothers and sisters, that this book that you and I have the privilege of possessing It's unlike anything else in all of creation. Indeed, our God says it won't pass away. It'll stand the test of time into eternity. It's working. If we submit to it, yield to it, it's working in the most fundamental and basic levels of who we are. It truly is living and active and it's not revealing to us a set of facts. It's revealing to us a person. And it originates from that person. And that's why it's living and active. And that's why it transcends time. And that's why it bears the marks of divinity. And that's why it's piercing to our nature. And that's why it's true. And that's why it's unfailing and effective. Because it's not just an encyclopedia or a dictionary of facts. It is the revelation of a person. Specifically, the revelation of God Almighty. It gives us truth. Truth about our world. Truth about our God. Truth about ourselves. Truth about our relationship to God. Let me tell you something that has proven true more times in my life than I care to admit. The Bible seems to know more about me than I know about me. And ultimately, brothers and sisters, it's this word given to us by God that reveals the gospel of God. God's plan, redemptive plan to save humanity. As Paul says in Romans 1.16, it reveals the very power. The power to save in the gospel. Telling us of our sin and our need for forgiveness and of Jesus. And His perfect life and obedient death and His beautiful and powerful and glorious resurrection all on our behalf. It tells us that if we place our faith in Him, if we cling to the promise, calling out and crying out to Him for salvation, God will indeed apply His saving work to our lives, forgive us of our sins, and mark us out as His for all eternity. You and I know none of that apart from this book. Our entire spiritual existence is centered upon, hinged upon this singular word and what it has to say to us 
What is the word of God? It is the revelation of God and all that he does. Including primarily saving sinners. Secondly, what do we do with this word? I think we find two things in our text this morning. First, almost comprehensively explained in verses 1 through 12, but implied and embedded also in verse 13. What are we as Christians to do with the word of God if we know what it is? We're to first share it. It's what Paul and company does in verse 13. He says, you received the word, but you also heard it from us. To reiterate, verse 2, chapter 2, we had boldness in God to declare to you the gospel of God. Verse 9, we toiled and we worked while we proclaimed to you the gospel so that we wouldn't be a hindrance. He commends them in verse 3 because they heard it, but first and foremost, we must take stock that it was actually shared. And that's, a, that's a, a fine lesson for you and I to learn. If we are convinced, if we recognize and are convinced that this truly is the Word of God, then we must pass it around broadly and liberally. We must share it enthusiastically. We must let it fill our minds and then fill our speech so that we speak of it constantly. We speak of it everywhere that we go. We speak of it to every person that we encounter. We share it by the way that we live and the way that we talk, the decisions that we make. We're intentional about it. I was talking with Jamie this week and I said, imagine what it would be like if every Every church member, when asked something in the community about themselves, their first response was something about church and Christ and Scripture. Imagine the witness. Somebody says, tell me something about you. And your first response is, I'm a Christian born again by the saving grace of Christ. I believe in the Word of God and I go to Trinity Baptist Church. It's probably not that technical. It would be weird, but... You get my point. It's a good reminder for us, church, that the Bible doesn't just exist for our private internalization. It's meant to be shared. And in fact, that's why you and I are even still here. As long as you have breath in your lungs and waves in your brain that keep you alive, and as long as your conscience, you have... Conscious, you, you have the mandate from God to share His Word. And understand what I mean by share it. We don't share it as a suggestion. We don't share it as an object of discussion. We don't share it as an object of criticism or an object of entertainment. We share it as the Word of God. We share it as the source of of life. We share it as the only message that can save and bring a lost people into a saving relationship with God. Paul was so serious about this that even at the end of Colossians, he says, pray for me 
that I may share the word of God with boldness, that a door may be opened. As we read and prayed for this morning and he, in Second Thessalonians, he tells this church in chapter 3, verse 1, pray for me that I may share the word and that it may speed ahead. He's so serious about this that in Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, 7, and 8, he says, if any man or angel preaches to you a different gospel and a different word, let him be anathema, let him be cursed, disregarded and rejected and cast out. It's because the Apostle Paul and other brothers and sisters have recognized that this word, it's not a game being played. It's not an avenue to gain popularity or fame or influence or build a platform on. It's a word that deals with God himself and the salvation of humanity. And so we share it boldly and we share it powerfully. We share it faithfully. We share it clearly. We share it passionately. We share it without hindrance. Paul testified to that much about his own life in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. I didn't come with eloquent, lofty speech, words of fanciful wisdom. I came in plain language and I preached Christ and Christ crucified. It's not a suggestion. We don't share it as a suggestion. We don't share it as a comfortable conversation of after mealtime talk. It's the word of God given to us. We share it as if personally convinced of it and personally changed by it. Part of, part of the call to faithfulness that God's people must heed in every generation is the call to share the word of God in the world without reservation. It doesn't just mean in the areas that we like or the areas that we're passionate about. It means in every area. The only reason that you and I even know the word today and the only reason that the Thessalonians knew the word is because somebody came and shared it with them. In Romans 10, faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. That's been God's designed, ordained plan from the beginning. Brothers and sisters, the only hope some of our family members have, some of our co-workers have, some of our friends have, some of our neighbors have, some of our in our community have, the only hope they have is you and I opening our mouths about the Word of God. That's it. Secondly, is what Paul commends these Christians for. What do we do with the Word of God? Well, these Thessalonian Christians, two words describe what they did. They received it and they accepted it. Now, on the surface, those seem like the same words or very similar, but in actuality, they have a bit of a nuanced meaning. The word received there means objective, external receiving, like granting permission to hear something. Something that happens outside of you, happens to you, where you consider it. It kind of means giving it a hearing. Now, lots of people come up to me and try to persuade me with things, and I'll receive what they say, I'll consider it, I'll give them a hearing, but that doesn't mean it's going to have any bearing on me. Well, first and foremost, these Christians in Thessalonica, when the Apostle Paul and his brothers came preaching the word, they were at least willing to consider it, to receive it, to let it, let it have a hearing among them. 
But then more profoundly is the word accepted. It's a bit more of a subjective word and it's got internal implications to it. It means more so embrace. To accept it means to allow it into the heart. To let it even work in the heart. To be even convinced of it. Again, to embrace it. All of this means that the Thessalonians here, they, they not only permitted Paul to share the word externally to them, but they also embraced the word internally and personally. That's the proper response of what humanity is to do with God's word. They are first to give it a hearing. Which, just, just side note, just uh, by way of application, because I can, I have the microphone. You should constantly be under the right preaching of God's word. And just another word about that. Let me get on a soapbox for just a second. That doesn't mean listening to online sermons. Now, praise God that we have the ability and technology to listen to really good, faithful preaching from all over the world. It's edifying. It builds us up, so on and so forth. But I will argue all day that God's intention and design is for you to set in person under the preaching of God's word by a preacher that you know and that also knows you. There's something uniquely powerful about the word of God being spoken over your soul in a context where everybody can be known. That is most fundamentally what the church is. Brothers and sisters, it's not optional. To be faithful attending the church, it is imperative for your spiritual good to regularly be under the preaching of God's word. I don't remember how I got there. Oh, receive. You have to be willing to receive it. And to be willing to receive it, you have to be around it. To be around it, you have to go where it's shared. But more than just receiving it, you have to embrace it. You have to accept it. Which means you have to open your heart to it. You have to let it expose your thoughts. You have to let it penetrate past your eardrums and past just your intellectual cap capabilities. You have to let it kind of drip down into the heart. You know why I labor against distractions? Uh, let me again, side note, say, this isn't a... How do I say this? I'm glad your kids are here. And they will be distracting. And that's okay. They need to be in the service with the church, hearing the preaching of God's word, just like you do. So when I say distraction, I'm not referring to your kids. I'm saying those internal things of it's harmless to let my mind wander. It's hardless to let my heart be distracted. These are victimless, victimless things. Let me remind you, they're not. It's not harmless to let your mind wander during the preaching of God's word. The call to receive God's word rightly is to accept it and personally internalize it and let it in and internally apply it and let it wrestle with you and deal with you. And you can't do that if your mind's thinking about lunch or problems or this, that, or the other. That's why, brothers and sisters, we have a moment of silence at the beginning. Because it's chaotic out of these doors. We've got a million billion things going on in our hearts and our minds. And we're asking for one hour and a half 
do our absolute best to push it all out, get still, get quiet before the Lord, and listen. The Thessalonian Christians accepted it. They recognized it to be the divine word of God, and they brought it in. Paul and company, they might have been the immediate uh, source of the message, but they were no more than a mouthpiece. These Thessalonian Christians, once they begin to hear it, and once they begin to accept it, and once they begin to realize its divine properties, and its piercing work, and its effective work, and its truthfulness, then they quickly realize, hey, this may be coming out of Paul's mouth, but this thing originates with God. It's beyond just logic and reason. There's faith, and there's conviction here. There's a con- convincing that this is supernatural. They have realized This word has brought them life because it's brought them Christ. Now, one more word really quickly. An implication of embracing the word of God from the heart means that we must also, must also reject certain other things. There's a phrase in here that's one of my favorite phrases of this verse. Paul says you accepted it in verse 13. Not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. Now, on one hand, that gives us the nature of the scriptures. It's not the word of man. It is the word of God. There's a contrasting picture there. Helps us understand even better what this word is. Again, it's not the word of man. It's not the word of Paul, not the word of Timothy or Sylvanius or Schuyler or Doug or anybody else. It's the word that comes from God. And they recognize that and they accepted it as such. This is not man-made, it's not mythology, it's God's word. But embedded in that, maybe an undercurrent of that, is also this thinking that you should always embrace the word of God over the word of man. When the two are set against each other, choose the word of God, not the word of man. And I felt compelled to tell you that because the pressures that you and I live in today to embrace the word of man are significant. Embrace this ideology and embrace that ideology and embrace this movement and embrace this idea. And then the pressures to even reshare that kind of junk. 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5, Paul says they're gonna, there's going to be a time, Timothy, when they heap up for themselves Teachers to suit their own passions and tickle their own ears and preach their own fancies. Men who will have no courage and they will succumb to the pressures of culture. Not only will there be those kind of men preaching, there'll be those kind of listeners too. Don't 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 listen to the word of men. Listen to the word of God. Don't hear and heed the thinking, the reasoning, or the logic of the world. Brothers and sisters, it's a dead end. It's foolishness wrapped up in junk. Heed the word of God. It will not fail. It is true. It's divine. And it deals with our nature. Okay, I have to finish. Uh, The end of verse 13. Let's skip through here. So... What is the word of God? Well, it's God's revelation of himself and all that he does, which means it's God's word that tells us the gospel. 
so we can be saved. What do we do with it? We share it and we receive it and accept it. Well, thirdly, what does it do to us? Paul says, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Now, there's two, two things here to say very quickly, uh, two implications of understanding that. Number one is the present tense of that statement. It is at work. Now, if it is presently at work, that means it's already previously been at work. And it has in the Thessalonian Christian lives. Uh, look over into chapter 1, verse 8 and verse 9. Paul reminds them, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. And listen to this. And how... You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Oh, if anything could be said about our church, I, I hope it's something like this. We have a reputation from, uh, of turning to God from idols. To serve the living and the true God and to wait for Jesus to come and take us home. Well, that's the previous work that this word has done in their lives. It's the immediate work that this word has done. But the, the phrase that Paul uses back in verse 13 is a continual phrase. It's continuing its work in you believers. It is presently at work. Which means it's constantly conforming us. It's sanctifying us. It's constantly molding us. It's constantly helping us renounce idols and turn to God to serve Him and wait for Christ. The Word of God and the Gospel of God are not just for a momentary transformation. They're not just for the beginning of the Christian life. They are the very bedrock and centrality of the entire Christian life. Even once we get into the glories of heaven. We will live by and be sustained by and celebrate the words of God. The word is at work. And then notice specifically, it's a, a detail I don't want to skip over. It's a word that's at work in believers. It's doing that complete nature change type of work. Just a word of warning. Don't fall into the temptation to treat the Bible as simply a tool for moral improvement. The Word of God is comprehensive in its work. And it brings a complete and an entire and total overhaul of your nature. That will affect your morals. But it's so much more than just a manual for moral improvement. It makes you like Christ. Holy, righteous, godly, pure. Affecting your motive, thoughts, desires, pleasures, purposes, words, works, deeds, conduct, your entire self. Now the reason that the word of God does this kind of work, just real quickly, I want to read to you 
couple of quotes from a man named Leon Morris. He helps us to understand how this word works within us. He says, the word work is almost always used in the New Testament of some form of spiritual activity. It can be used of such things as faith and prayer and life or death. And in each case, it's used with the intention that a force not being human is involved. And here in verse 13, it draws attention to the fact that the power manifested in the lives of converts is not of this world, but it's a divine power. Where the word of God is welcomed with obedient faith. There, the power of God is at work. The condition of this working of God in men is that they continue in the faith. In other words, they realize that they cannot live today on the spiritual capital of yesterday. The Word of God renews them day in and day out. Molds them day in and day out. Conforms them to the likeness of Christ day in and day out, changing our loves and our hates and our affections, our desires, changing who we are, taking us from death to life, from blind to seeing, from deaf to hearing, from dark to light, from lost to saved, from orphaned to adopted. All of that accomplished through the powerful working of the Word of God as you and I embrace it and yield to it, submit our lives to it. Church, this is why this is why we prioritize God's word. Because humanity's greatest need is not intellectual proudness or mental tickling. Humanity's greatest need is a conversion of the heart. And nothing in all of creation will bring that about except God's spirit working with God's word in your heart. You don't need clever myths. You don't need my political opinions up here. You don't need my ideas on the next program, the next ministry method. You don't need my ideas about pretty much anything. What you need is God's word to have its full effect upon you. What you need is God's Spirit to carry God's Word to your heart. What you need are men who are faithful to study the Scriptures and then expose them to you. That's why we go verse by verse. That's why we read God's Word, sing God's Word, pray God's Word, study God's Word. That's why we see God's Word in the ordinances. Because what you and I need is God to bring His Word into our lives and do a work only he can do so brothers and sisters as we get ready to again lord willing next week start amos let's remember why we're going through even difficult books of the bible it's so that god may get a hold of us and we might be saved and reconciled to him and conformed to his likeness and enjoy flourishing in a relationship with him father this word of you of yours it's It is living and active, and it's sharp, and it does pierce, but it also strengthens and gives life and builds up. And in it, we find the gospel. We find Christ, and we find the need for salvation. We find the truth and, and destruction of sin and the opportunity to call out to you for life. Indeed, we find in this word of yours, you, 
in your faithful calling. No longer be conformed to the likeness of this world. But to be transformed in the renewal of our minds and in the spirit of our hearts to the likeness of Christ. Lord, let us be a church marked by your word. Let it have its full effect upon us. We pray that we would always stand upon it as a pillar of all that we do and say and believe. Help us, O Spirit, to understand it rightly and apply it accurately and live by it joyfully. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.